This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Step off the train I'm walking down your street again And past your door But you don't live there anymore It's years since you've been
the unmistakable voice there of Tracy Thorne from Everything But The Girl and Missing. Well, Joan Nessel established the lesbian Her Story archives in New York City, but now lives in Melbourne, and she's a patron of the Australian Gay and Lesbian Archives. Her queer activism stretches back to the late 1950s when she was part of the lesbian bar scene in New York City, and it kind of stepped up a notch in the late 1960s following Stonewall, and she joins me on the line today to discuss Midsummer's Generations of Queer. Welcome, Joan. It's an awesome privilege to have you on 3CR again. Oh, the privilege is mine. It always has been when um, I've shared your radio waves. Joan, last time we spoke, George W. Bush had just been elected president Mm. of the U.S. I have to ask you this. What impacts do you think the Trump presidency will have on GLBTI rights in America? I think um, they're disastrous and they offers are made that seem to be safety and then they're destroyed with the next breath, not only for our queer selves, but for anyone um, who expects a caring government. I want to say it's because of a politics of emotional brutality, really, um, of, of decisions of who's human and who is not, that we need more than ever for intergenerational conversation from each side, because I'm 78 now, the young keep us going and we can help give the youth a sense of endurance and victory. So we need each other more than ever. Uh, Trump and the rising right which is happening across the Western world, uh, is a very dangerous and precarious time for the subversion, for difference that will be seen as anti-nationalist. Joan, you've been a queer activist since the late 1950s. What's the strongest lesson you have learned during your time as an activist? You know, James, I, I, I have not prepared anything for this talk, uh, for this conversation tomorrow. And this is one reason, because I think the deepest thing I have learned is to listen, because we get so sure that we knew what, we're so sure about what we thought we were doing, and sometimes we're very sure about what others should do. And the most profound thing I can say to you is is that I'm still listening. I'm so excited to be part of this conversation, because I do not know any of the other um, participants. And that, to me, is crucial to me, because I will learn something every minute. So, well, I think the most thing I've learned is that be ready for complexity, be ready to think again, beware of nostalgia, but hold on to memory. Things like that, James. Midsummer's Generations of Queer is a conversation about what cross-generational dialogue does and what it could do better. What do you think we could generally do better in that area in the queer communities? Well, you know, this is... I'm not an expert on this, and I particularly... This is a different cultural setting for me. So I'm only going to speak from 
my age group, all right? And even that, you know, there's, this is a time where generalizations come easily and they can be polarizing. I, but I think older, I'll talk about lesbian feminists particularly because that was my um, political set in a way, need to, need not to fear um, their disappearance. They need not to fear that Everything we worked for is being uh, is not appreciated. We need to start learning and accepting new languages, new his, uh, the historical struggles that are happening now. Because as a people struggle, they immediately become history. Um, we need so that I am concerned. That's why, but I'm also I'm concerned about. I, I have to hear what younger generations think someone of my age can give them. And I have to be honest in thinking of what we need to hear from them and then not to make false promises, not to have pretend wisdom. I mean, the hardest thing about being human is that we yearn so deeply and we can be so wrong, but we can, we can recover and we can give hope to each other. Joan, you were part of the lesbian bar scene in New York City in yes. the late 1950s. What was it like on that scene back then? Oh, oh honey. I always say, read my A Restricted Country. <laughs> um, it was I, I, it's such a huge question, James. Yeah, like I, yeah. But what it was, it was like survival. for you? Well, I, yeah, that's, I mean, it was, I was young. I was full of lust. I was always working. I was, uh, and I, I think class is very important. Um, I was willing, and this where it was the desire of the my femme body to find the touch that it so yearned for, and the only place I could find that were in these policed um, bars of Greenwich Village in the fifties. Other people saw them as dangerous, and yes, there was always danger because we were deviants. We were uh, criminalized. We were pathology. But for me, it was theater of the most profound kind. It's where I learned to take on the state, and that was to the point of view of even what clothes we wore because at that time, if you wore cross-dressing was illegal, and if you wore three, piece, if you weren't wearing three pieces of what was designate, designated as your own gender, and that was a complexity, you could be arrested. And I, when I entered lesbian, the lesbian feminist world, and that's I'm sort of like a talking rock. What I mean by that is I'm a piece of queer archaeology because, uh, and really another important thing I've learned—it's all coming to me, James. So you're helping me for tomorrow. Oh, that's good. Is that is that is don't give away any part of yourself that increased your humanness. So when I say, you know, I came out as a queer femme and then I was a lesbian femme, it, it is not about you jettison something. No. So I have all these slices of experience. So learning in those bars that a people's desire could be stronger than a state's hatred. And that is something that 
came in good stead during the uh, marriage campaign, um, uh, vitriol and hatred that was coming out. So that I learned. And I learned how I was 17, you know, how I could, how I, I could take on the police, how I could help my comrades survive. And that carried me into the civil rights movement. It carried me into other liberation struggles. How so, did you take on the police? I find that fascinating. Just going to those bars, because these were policed bars. So every night, the cops would come in, and you knew this. You knew that it was it was a um, like a a game of chess. Who would be arrested? Who would be beaten up? Who would you have to defend? We had we had support. We always had a number that we could call. This is still the time of police raids. It was the time of the vice squad. It was a time I stood on a bathroom line every time getting my allotted amount of toilet paper. And all I can say, if you, I've written most of my early writing came from this time. So um, it was, people have perhaps a better sense of what it was for gay men, it, it, but Lesbian women, butch femme women, were, and many who worked in very, um, what would be, you know, subsistent jobs as passing women. So there was also the gender uh, fluidity conversation. Sex workers were part of my world. Um, You took on the police because the bars were illegal, and the only way they could exist was the police had worked out something with the organized crime groups that ran these bars. And so you had a cop coming in um, every Saturday night to get his payoff, which you would see. And he'd, we, we were only allowed to dance together in a back room. And that back room had a red light in the ceiling. And when the red light went on, that was the bartender flashing us the message that the cop was on his way. And sure enough, so you could be arrested if you were dancing together as a same-sex couple. So sure enough, um, the cop would come in and every time he would pick out one, particularly a butch woman, who incensed him, particularly if she was with a very uh, a beautiful femme woman. And w- we would see things like he'd take her outside and push her up against the wall and say, so you think you're, you're a man and, and make her drop her pants. These were... These were moments that we went through as a collective. And when people say, Where did, how did Stonewall happen? This is how Stonewall happened. It got to the point, as I got my allotted, I've written my allotted amount of toilet paper, that at some point, at some point, we would rise up as a people. And when we were rising up, I, so were others. So the 60s was that unique time, and they will have to come again, at least in Trump. In, I call it Trumbull, which I realize now is Trump in Turnbull. But um, anyway, James, I hope I'm making sense. You certainly are. Joan, you mentioned the importance of class on the bar scene in, in New York in the late 50s. Yes. I imagine that's very, very important still today. But um, can you elaborate on that? Why was class so important back then? Well, first of all, it was important because it was real. It was our lived life. So class determined how safe you were. Middle class and, and upper class women could have house parties, 
professional women in the 50s, 40s um, could do things in a different way. But working class women had to go to these public places. That was the only place where we could be with what we call kindred spirits or with women who our desire could be fulfilled with. And so we, many of us, like in my own growing up, uh, I, I was used to police because of their intrusion into my own. I grew up with this. Uh, never knew my father, so my mother and my brother both who had um, police involvement, criminal involvement of different for different reasons of different kinds. For many working class people, uh, we never expected the state to be our protector, and so. In some odd way, we carved out that public territory before anybody else did. And I mean we. I don't mean Joe. I mean the Butch Femme working class people across America, and, and I won't speak for here and I won't speak for any place else, took on the police because as working class people, they have had to take on the state in so many ways before. So... You didn't expect, so my colleagues, as I said, were sex workers, taxi drivers, um, people, stockroom clerks, people, women and, and others, passing women, um, doing the most survival jobs. And also not having access to money, uh, to hire lawyers. So everything was precarious. But the one thing that wasn't precarious, and also being working class. Now, again, that's an overgeneralization. But you, I started working when I was 13. I was in the public world since I was 13 trying to take care of myself. It's very hard to, to allow the state to take away your own body, which is what your desire, where your desire resides, when, you know, when you've been working to take care of yourself. So there's a lot of complexities to being working class. But there's no, I don't want to overgeneralize because people do that. They, they say, oh, uh, you sound too educated to be working class. Well, you know, you know how many working class people taught themselves to read and live on ideas? Mm. I mean, there are stereotypes that come with these certainties. So, but you can see, you can see what's happening here. And it's not, that it's hard for me to stay in one area of resistance. So you ask me, what have I learned? Resistance is like breathing. That's why feminism is always essential to me, no matter what other adjectives I use, femme, queer, feminist. When you breathe, when you breathe the air of resistance, it connects you to larger and larger winds of change. So it's never just your own liberation. You become part of other people's liberation as well. Joan, to what extent was the Stonewall Uprising in 1969 a working class queer uprising? Uh, it definitely was, because nobody. Well, I shouldn't say that. I can't. Again, I can't speak for the, you know, the uh, the generations of gay men who went there, and there could be some, you know, middle class. There's always rough trade, and and but. Definitely when the street, the people who took to the streets were working class, transgendered people. That was one of the first betrayals of the gay liberation movement. 
when they were exiled, the same people who took on the police. Um, so it was uh, it was a bar that was not um, that was not the site of of um, it, it was a working class bar, and these bars were typecast. You know, so I went to the Sea Colony. That was a working class lesbian bar, um, and it was street young street people uh, who frequented. You know, who were plying their trades in different ways. So it and it was that anger that had built up over the years. But it was also the sense that we live on the street, so you know, you're not going to scare us. Now that we've achieved marriage equality in Australia, what do you think the main focus of the LGBTI community in this country should be in terms of activism? You know, James, if I answer that like I know, mm. I would be breaking one of my own really? understandings. Really? Yes, because first of all, I'm not Australian. Secondly... I can. I will never speak for another generation about how they make their way to what their priorities should be. I can speak for what it does and doesn't seem to me. And one of the questions I will, I hope, we'll talk about is what what is a post marriage queer resistant world like? What do you think it's like? I, I for me. At 78, Mm. and I've been with my partner, Di, for 20 years, I find it actually regressive. Really? But you see, I'm afraid to say these, I'm not afraid, but I don't want to set up a conversation that's so one-sided, just me. Uh, And I don't want to set up, you know, lines of conflict before I hear other voices. But for what it... For me, it feels like whole new exiles have been created. So, so when you say exiles, what do you mean by exiles? I mean queer queer people who don't fit what seems to be the new expectations of queer people. So, I've already had things like the white picket fence. What, honey? Oh, the white picket fence kind of, you know, marriage children. Exactly, or like you know, oh, so you're going to get married now? No, and so then. Well, what's wrong with you? Why, why don't you want to get married? So, you know, we used to talk about shame, that, the, that we, lived, we were a people of shame. And now, so now there's new shames. We've created new shames. Or um, the expectations of, yes, of a kind of domesticity, a kind of, well, our love is real now. What does that mean? Because, the, see, I'm getting into trouble. I, I, I want to save this. I don't want to foreclose discussion. You know what I mean, James? So Absolutely. When um, mine is the only voice now, so and I know what I think, but I need to hear. I need to hear. Joan, you'll be part what of younger people think. You'll be part yes. of a, a, a conversation. I believe it's tomorrow with Generations of Queer. Can you give us yes. the details so people can rock along if they choose? Well, honey, you know I I don't have. I'm, That's I'm all right. They could just I'm, they could just Google it. Midsummer's Generations what, of Queer. Right, but I think it's sold out. But I would say come anyway. <laughs> but because it can always, people can always stand, and somebody can sit on my lap, or I can sit on someone's. But um, I think it's two thirty to six thirty, and it's at the Dockland Library. Oh yes, Harbour Drive, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have that. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
Joan Nestle, it's been a great privilege talking to you today on 3CR. Let's not wait another 17 years to do it, though. Oh, no, James. I, I feel like I know you. I know your voice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you live in and Brunswick, I think. I've seen you around as well. Oh, well, always come up and say hello. And, and give, we can set it. I'll talk, I'll, talk at the, I'll talk again anytime you want me, James. That would be a great privilege. Okay. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been awesome chatting to you. And good luck tomorrow. I know it's going to be a huge success. Thank you, James. Thank you all so much. Okay, great bye. Pleasure. Bye. And that was the iconic Joan Nestle talking about her queer history, her story. When I was your girl I didn't know that I would end where you begin More beautiful in your skin No matter of regret This loosening curl Teasing you out When I was your girl In my room You said we'll stay here for an endless year Close the door, we're letting no one In my cars, I see you watching from the edge of the bed and thinking words that you never said when I was your girl. When I was your girl, and then today.
Nelson Moyet there. When I was your girl, it's 2525. Run in your face on 3CR. With James, got a very special guest in the studio. Alison Thorne is a veteran LGBTIQ liberationist and activist. She's a founding member of Radical Women in Melbourne and the managing editor of the Freedom Socialist Organiser. She'll be chairing the forum Reviving the Spirit of Stonewall in Australia and around the globe to commemorate Stonewall's anniversary later in June. Welcome to In Your Face, Alison. It's great to be here, James. Thank you so much. Uh, how would you define an LGBTIQ liberationist? That is a... Wonderful question, because when I first got involved in the gay liberation movement in the late 70s, pretty much all the activists at that time considered themselves liberationists. And uh, what we meant by liberation was upending a society which was based on homophobia, based on transphobia, sexism, racism. We meant liberating every aspect of ourselves. We meant going beyond um, the gender binary. We meant uh, challenging the ideas of monogamy and the patriarchal institution of the family. And marriage. And marriage, and marriage. And, um, like, it's interesting because our forum that we're hosting to celebrate Stonewall is actually called After Yes. And um, we will be framing our um, discussion in the whole context of the long battle for marriage equality. And the two organisations that are hosting the event, Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party, we have a very um, dialectical approach to this whole question of marriage. We were involved in um, some of the helping organise some of the earliest uh, marriage equality rallies after um, the Howard government imposed its um, same-sex marriage ban. And like people asked us, hey, you're socialist feminists, you're LGBTIQ liberationists. What are you doing supporting an institution um, like marriage? And what did you say? And what we said is we said that we support same-sex marriage equality because it will have the same kind of impact that things like uh, no-fault divorce laws, women um, entering the workforce en masse, it would have the same impact that those things had on marriage. And by chipping away at that patriarchal, heterosexist institution that we'd help um, turn marriage into its opposite. And, you know, like that's very much what we're hoping to see. The forum, of course, is is celebrating, if you like, the Stonewall anniversary. It's commemorating that. Mm-hmm. Tell us what happened at Stonewall on that fateful night in New York City in 1969. Okay, well, that fateful night, like in many ways, it was little different um, to, you know, the weekend before and the weekend before that, what we actually had was we had um, a very homophobic police force. We had um, bar owners who were in it for the profit rather than um, the love of community. And we had people um, 
who were out wanting to have a good time. Butch Dykes, drag queens of colour, working class people, socialising at the Stonewall Inn and just wanting to have a good time. And what they got was yet, yet another police raid. But this time the patrons snapped. They'd had enough and they fought back. And really the whole story um, of Stonewall is a legendary one. But I think it is important not to see the Stonewall riots as a single event. The Stonewall riots were part of the context of the time. They were part of the 60s. And in fact, there were earlier instances where um, LGBTIQ people fought back um, against harassment in bars that are are less known. An interesting one um, took place in the Tenderloin District in San Francisco at um, the Compton's Diner. And it was a diner um, run by Jean Compton and it was um, frequented um, by many um, gender-diverse people and young queers, I guess, using 25 first century terminology, they'd have obviously used different terms back then. Um, And there was a a riot at the Compton's Diner three years before the Stonewall riot. And what happened at Stonewall, what happened at Compton's was in the context of a civil rights movement. It was in the context of a movement uh, fighting um, against the imperialist war in Vietnam and it was in the context of a women's liberation movement. And so the LGBTIQ people were not operating in a, a vacuum. They were like influenced, um, you know, by what was happening around them at the time and that very much um, fuel the events at Stonewall. But what was important about the events at Stonewall was that they sparked the imagination, that they sparked resistance, and uh, very quickly gay lib emerged, first in New York, then on the west coast of the US, um, then here um, in Australia. And uh, culminating, of course, in 1978 with uh, with Mardi Gras, and 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 then the impetus that that um, gave the community as well, and of course that was a riot too. Exactly, exactly. And um, one of the things that our event that we're we're also doing, we're not only paying tribute to people like um, Martha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera and those who led the fight back at Stonewall, but we're also paying tribute to our very own 78ers. And wasn't it inspiring um, to see the 78ers marching in Mardi Gras this year and so many of the amazing interviews that was that were done by those veteran members of our community hearken back to that very spirit of liberation which we're wanting to inspire with our Stonewall celebration. So in 2018, is the LGBTI community at an activism crossroads where the two main forks in the road are sexuality and gender identity? Are there other forks in the road? Well, um, I, I think all of the forks unite, really. 
Um, we, like our community is one that is not just sexually diverse and gender diverse. It's also um, a community that's racially diverse. Um, it is a community um, that is uh, divided on class. You know, that, that all of these issues are also um, things that intersect. And present opportunities as well. That's it. Because that's, of that diversity. Exactly. You know, like that they do indeed um, present opportunities. And if we really focus on LGBTIQ liberation and if our vision is a vision of every single LGBTIQ person being liberated, then we're going to be touching on so many issues for um, First Nations like LGBTIQ people, for, for the sister girls from Tiwi Island how can they be liberated without their land? And it, like, it is very interesting because I um, started my political journey in the late seventies, and uh, I started out um, concerned with um, my oppression as a lesbian and diving in, like into that and asking all of those questions: Where does oppression come from? led me to feminism, led me to socialist feminism and led me to having an all-encompassing view of what it is that we're fighting for. We're chained to Alison Thorne from the Freedom Socialist Party. Alison, post-yes vote, is the LGBTI community at risk of stagnation and just becoming another economic unit defined and exploited by commercialism and capitalism? Oh, what a splendid question. You like that one? Um, to ask, I do, like, I do like that question. Um, but my answer is that I, like, I hope not. So do uh, I. <laughs> because it's depressing if it's true, isn't it? It, it is. It's very depressing if it's true. But uh, the, the like the struggle for um, marriage equality, it's really something um, that mobilised um, a whole new generation. I got I would be so inspired when I'd go along to the rallies and just um, see so many people um, who were so much younger than me. And uh, that was fantastic and it was inspiring. So you're very optimistic about the future of queer activism, by I, the sounds look, of it. I, I am. I am. And that's a good thing. Because, like, like, I'm thinking that what was inspiring all those people out on the street um, fighting for for marriage equality, for so many people, it was so much more than the right to say, I do, it was uh, about no bourgeois politician like is going to tell me, you know, like what I can do with my life, you know, like that there was that real sense and like it very much became a defining battle between on the, the the one hand, people out on the streets fighting for marriage equality, and on the other hand, the dinosaurs who it took 13 years kicking and screaming 
um, before we like even got that terrible marriage survey. And I mean, really. And they're still kicking. They might not be screaming as much, but they're still kicking behind the scenes, aren't they, with their religious freedom to discriminate? They they are indeed. And I think um, the Ruddock Review, that that's... um, That's a threat, isn't it? One of the things it is, it's a Trojan horse. um, And I think... A Trojan horse for... Like a a, a Trojan horse for the the right wing to to bring back um, discrimination in the guise of religious freedom. And because we, it is a right-wing movement, isn't it? That, look, there is. There is a right-wing movement out there um, and the far right um, uses a whole lot of things um, to try and mobilise from law and order hysteria to Islamophobia, but they just as much um, use issues um, such as anyone who challenges the, the gender binary. You know, That's like, a big issue for them and that's why they were so... And still are, so anti-safe schools. Like, absolutely, absolutely. Um, And there are just so many issues for us to be fighting around, and there are um, small but dangerous um, outright fascist and neo-Nazi groups um, who are out there in the community right here in Melbourne trying to build a mass movement and those very same groups um, have their allies that are organising in the parliament as well. And one of the things that we think is so very, very important is that we need to understand that every reform that we win is only as good as how long we can actually hang on to it. And as somebody who has uh, studied um, quite a lot the whole issue of the far right and fascism, I um, I get um, I get overwhelmed almost when I think of what happened in Germany, the Weimar Republic. It had such a vibrant um, gay and lesbian community. It had bars. It had an extremely um, popular, widely distributed lesbian magazine called The Girlfriend. Um, It was an extremely um, well-developed homosexual community in Weimar, Germany. And that was a community um, that was crushed uh, by the growth of the far right. So this is something that we need to take uh, very seriously. And when we talk about reviving the spirit of Stonewall, what we're talking about is reviving that resistance and fight back. Your forum is 4pm, Saturday the 23rd of June. It's at the Solidarity Salon, which is at 580 Sydney Road. Uh, there's an optional dinner. There's cheap tickets. Uh, there's a dinner straight after the forum. And if people want more information, they can go to radicalwomen.org for more details. And you've got a great list of speakers, including 3CR Sally Goldner from Out of the Pan. Oh, look, we're so thrilled to have um, Sally. We've got um, also um, Josh Mason, um, who coordinates... Uh, the LGBTI 
Q Punk blog. So that's going to be amazing. We're taking an internationalist perspective as well. We have um, Sarah Nina speaking, and she is um, an expert on Timor Leste, and she's going to be looking at um, lesbian, bi, and trans women's rights in Timor Leste. And we've got Radical Women's very own um, Lisa Farrell, and I'm chairing, and I'm really looking forward to it. Wonderful. That's Saturday, the 23rd of June. Uh, in Brunswick, all righty. Uh, Alison Thorne, thank you so much for joining us on your face. Uh, it's been great chatting to you and just uh, hearing your breadth and wealth of experience. It's wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity. It's 9 to 5. You're on In Your Face on 3CR. And here's Chicks on Speed with their track Coventry. No one noticed you had disappeared. It's been two days, no connection. Pile of hardware making heads. If the quality is high at the parties there's a place for you on the guest list there's a place for you in a somebody's eye you 
Perth band died pretty there, wig out, and he's Mazzy Star, Seasons of Your Day.
But that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on what's that frequency again, dear? 855. I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. In your face, we'd like to thank Thornhubber Health for their financial support of this program. Thornhubber Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities. A future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more about them, search Thornhubber Health on your search engine or find them on Facebook. I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.